Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, hey, like the ASX, is at all-time highs. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the straw man himself, Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? Very good. Good to be at all-time highs. Very it happy. is good to be at all-time highs, isn't it? This is our last... Uh, you know what's fitting? This is the last podcast we're going to record before I go on three weeks holiday. So I'm leaving on a high. From now, I'm leaving it in your capable hands, mate. If the market doesn't isn't higher when I get back, it'll be completely your fault. That's basically my uh, <laughs> point. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make you an invitation. You won't get this very often from me. I'm going to invite you to steal from the future. Okay. We, we've, we've pre-recorded a podcast with a suggestion from Patrick. And so because of the miracle of modern technology, we're recording these out of sequence and you know already what Patrick's going to say. So here's your opportunity to get ahead of Patrick. How would you describe Strawman, Andrew? <laughs> Strawman is like fantasy football except for shares. <laughs> so we give you $100,000 and you can go and buy some shares with it. You know, quote, unquote, buy. because It's not real shares you're buying, but it will give you a bit of experience in the market, a chance for you to test your metal or perhaps climb our rankings and compete against some very other smart investors and also of course take a peek at what they're buying and what's in their portfolio and hopefully get some extra insights and some investment ideas how about that i hope you're gonna, hope you're gonna share some thanks with patrick as a result of that sure yeah thanks patrick it was a good tip <laughs> i was running dry on new ways to describe it so <laughs> exactly. that was a nice one exactly that's coming in a future episode Stay, stay tuned for that one of uh, of Motley for Money. It'll be a, a fun When you hear it, you'll know what this is all about. All right, uh, mate, we've got a lot of business news this week and kind of an interesting combination of markets, macro and company, which gives us a lot of ground. And frankly, you and I don't, uh, we don't struggle for something to say. So I think we'll be, we'll be okay. We might just get straight into it. And I've got to start with, well, the intro that we kicked off with. ASX at all time highs. Now, I was reading this morning that there are something like 12 or 13 ASX 200 companies at all-time highs and another half dozen or so at 52-week highs, the old 12-month mm. high that we talk about. Now, on one hand, that's not unusual, right? You should expect that because by definition, the ASX can't go to all-time highs without some of the companies in the index being at all-time highs because it's an average kind of by definition, right? So it can't be at an all-time yeah. high and no companies in the ASX be at an all-time high. Uh, so we should expect it. And because the companies don't always move in lockstep, one day it'll be some companies, another day it'll be the other companies. The other thing I think probably worth calling out from my perspective at least is this is not, you, you, you know, this is not unusual. This is not, this is not, the, this is not the, the exception. This is the rule. Markets go higher over time. Markets spend remarkable amounts of time at all-time highs because they do go into those higher highs. The, the story of the stock market's a sawtooth. If you look at the graph, 
but it's up and to the right. And so we kind of should expect that, right? Like that's kind of what things are supposed to do. Mm. That being said, and a bit of, bit of editorial, then I'll invite you to comment. Um, that being said, I am a little mindful. I was on Ausbiz earlier this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 16th of June for, for date stamping purposes. Um, I was on Ausbiz this morning and they kind of asked about that. And I made the point that the market in Australia, I've made this point on the podcast before, the market in Australia in particular is a really funny beast. Because on one hand, it is the sum total of all the stocks in the ASX, as every market is. Yet, they are dominated remarkably by two sectors, the finance industry and the mining industry. And so when when the market's doing well, the the finance and mining industry should be doing well. And yet I look at the market or look at those industries and say, hang on, banks are at really, really high valuations. The miners are getting really, really high iron ore prices. If and when either of those change, the market, as we define it, will probably fall if those shares fall. And yet it will represent the the potential um, uh, risks or, or rewards of two industries and it's entirely possible, and maybe I'm just talking my book here, but as a stock picker or for stock pickers generally, it's entirely possible. So, for example, over the past few months, a whole lot of growth investors have really struggled, have done really poorly while the market's hitting all-time highs. It's entirely mm. possible the reverse happens at some point and these tech stocks and growth stocks start to recover at the same time as the market falls because the banks and miners do. So, I guess I'm just curious as to your your thoughts on on the market you know where we're at what's going on you know what's what's driving it where the opportunities and risks are how worried or not you are about the market just just, just some reflections on on being a, a three straight days of market highs we're definitely in um we're in, we're in cheery consensus mode aren't we Yes, but as you say, the market is regularly at all-time highs. I mean, pick a mm. pick a newspaper headline from five years, <laughs> ten years, fifteen years ago. That was the case, and and it just tends to go higher over time. So it's as you say, it, it's it's not unusual. People will draw two conclusions when you hear that headline. Either wow, the market's at all-time highs. You know, everyone's making money. FOMO's kicking yeah, yeah. in. I need to get in on it. Or yeah, you'll right, be the right, kind right. of person who goes, oh, it's at all-time highs. Therefore, we're due for a correction. <laughs> therefore, sell. And, yeah, and they're, right. they're both very understandable. I, I, for me, here's, here's a controversial statement. I, I don't invest oh. in the share market. I, 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 I don't. <laughs> I, I, I've got lots of companies that happen to be listed on the share market. <laughs> right. So maybe I'm being a bit cheeky here, a but little, you know, as a, a percentage, as, as a percentage, as the, as the judge would say. Well, I'm not. I mean, if, if I had if I had a broad based index, then yes, I guess I am. But I'm yeah. not. The market really, for me, serves only as a as a benchmark because I, I think as an investor, if I'm going to put all this effort and work in, I, I need to be doing better than the market average. Otherwise, I'm <laughs> right, right. I'm wasting my time. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. But but other than that, I don't actually pay too much mm-hmm. attention to it. My portfolio is not correlated much at all to the market because yeah, yeah. predominantly because I don't hold any banks or the big miners. So yeah. so it's it's not likely to move in in a in a similar fashion. So mm-hmm. I don't. I've been around long enough to know that these headlines come up all the time, and they usually they're usually not indicative of anything. And obviously, before before any big crash, the market is probably at a, at a higher level relative mm-hmm. to where it is historically. But but the reverse isn't. You can't necessarily infer the infer the opposite from the reverse. In other words, say the market's at an all time high, therefore it'll crash. It's it's it doesn't necessarily go both ways. So, uh, yeah. Great, great. The market's at an all-time high. You know, the other funny thing that I, I think gets a lot of airtime that doesn't deserve it is when we pass whole numbers. Yeah, so I love that. 
So yeah. when the All Ordinaries passed 7,000, you know, that yeah. was a milestone, I suppose, but it's a very yeah. arbitrary yeah. number. When Commonwealth Bank <laughs> passed 100 bucks a share, I was like, okay, yeah. Yeah. but, you know, I could issue some more shares or, or, or buy up some shares and that, that just – it's more about the size of the pie rather mm-hmm. than the individual value. So there are these things that I think seem more important than they are but yeah. that are not. So – Knowing that the market, what am I saying? I guess knowing that the market is all-time highs is great. It's really good. It's been it it, it shows the value of of uh, investing over the long term. If you if you'd done nothing except buy the index five years ago, you would have made eight percent or so per annum. Uh, not even including dividends. So let's round that up to 10% with dividends. And yet I could have gone back in the time machine five years ago and said, oh, by the way, you know, 2018 is going to be <laughs> really right. ordinary. We're going to have a global pandemic in which the market's going to crash 30, 40% or so. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there, was so, it, there, was so, there was such a giant wall of worry that mm-hmm. we overcame in achieving those returns. And the next five years will be exactly the same. So yeah, it, it, uh, worth, worth remarking on, not worth changing anything because of. I think that's true. I think uh, the, the thing I would add to that is that um, while I, I, I'm with you, in fact, I've got my, my two largest positions, or, uh, ish, largest positions, um, are corporate travel and get ready, Kogan. Kogan. You're supposed to say drink at this point, dude. <laughs> drink, drink. There we go. Yeah. One last time before I go on holidays. Um, <laughs> so my, my, my point is, you're talking about being uncorrelated, right? Kogan and corporate travel almost always go in opposite directions on a given trading day because if the market's feeling great about the, the pandemic going away, then travel stocks go up and online retail falls. If the market gets freaked out, online retail goes up and travel falls. And so I kind of yeah. feel like I'm stuck in this weird, you know, it's like the old the, your cat with, a, with buttered toast on its back. It just kind of spins in the air because cats always land on their feet, but buttered toast always lands buttered side down. So the cat kind of yeah. just sits in the middle of in midair and spins. I'm, I'm never quite going ahead. I'm never quite falling behind because normally something's losing while something's winning. Um, my point though was that if, if we do get a big market fall, it will take everything with it, at least in the short term, right? So while mm. your portfolio is uncorrelated, it's rare that if, if the market loses its, well, I'll say stuff, to keep it PG. When the market loses its stuff, um, shares will fall and they fall kind of indiscriminately, right? So ironically, while... You know, we might own companies that aren't necessarily correlated with banks as, as businesses and maybe even in the long term over as share prices. It's kind of one of those things that really sucks, right? You can say, well, I'm not going to own the banks and the mines. I'll own some small cap, mid cap stuff. I'll own some, some growth or some tech or some retail or something else. If and when the market does fall, it's going to take you. It's, it's going to wipe everything away at the same time, right? So yeah. you're going to have to have, and probably more, right? The, the, the smaller companies tend to fall more than the big ones. So you've almost got to have this tr- double or triple patience and and. Um, sort of, you know, uh, cast iron stomach. We got to go right. Okay, so here's what's going to happen here. Uh, I think these businesses are going to give you better returns over time than the banks. But when the market falls, they're going to fall faster, harder, further, and then hopefully come back better. Um, but you've got to kind of, you know, you really do need to kind of doubly gird your loins, right, for those kind of times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, just I, I think. I think, as we often say, it's a feature. It's not a bug. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. what happens. I, I think the, the reason the reason why the share market provides, historically at least, the best uh, returns over any asset mm-hmm. class is because of that. Yeah, it, exactly. it, it, right. it, it's the fact that that um, it, it is so risky in the short term that that gives you that opportunity. Risk equals reward, as as the yes. old saying kind of goes. Yep. So it's kind of like it's it's the it's the cost of membership. It's the cost of entry. And yeah. if if we could somehow wish it away, we want to be careful about what we're <laughs> wishing right. for, exactly. because what would happen in that in that scenario would be a very low returning asset class. So yeah, yeah it, it it is what it is. Yeah, it's also um, 
It's also kind of dumb. <laughs> the, mm. You know, because you, you think you're not even, you're not even, the opportunities given to us for higher returns aren't even. I mean, it's it's kind of higher risk in air quotes, but the long term returns are so astronomically superior to cash that really mm. it's not even a really a risk premium. It's just a volatility premium, right? But as you say, that's the point. You've got to be able to, yep. got to be able to put up with it and see through it because the other end of the rainbow is a, is a pretty big pot of gold if you can last the distance. Actually, I just mentioned to a friend only yesterday. He was mm. he was debating about he's got some extra cash and what he should do with it, whatever. And and he was saying, "Oh, I like the idea of shares, but it's just too risky." And I yeah, said yeah. to him that, "Listen, think about the risk you're taking with cash. I mean, there is no chance that you're going to lose That's money right. with cash, right? Yeah, yeah. But don't kid yourself. Risk a uh, cash is the riskiest asset over the long term, mm-hmm. and it is because all that happens, particularly in this this day and age, where you're going to get yeah. basically no interest at all every year, just through the power of inflation, your mm-hmm. purchasing power is going down and down and down and down. So the person that invests in cash for their whole life is taking the highest risk that they can possibly take. Um, not over the short term, definitely not. It's the best asset, Clive. If you need, if you've got some some use for some funds coming up in the next year or so, cash is where you definitely want to be. But anything sort of longer than sort of three five years, I think cash is an extremely risky asset. I think that's true. I think particularly in the context of um, uh, particularly in the context of the way the the returns are likely, and frankly, the inflation itself is likely. Um, I, I will I will only add to that, mate. Again, just for the sake of, of uh, clarity and, and informing our listeners, um, in, an individual stock is almost certainly more risky than cash. Five shares is probably more risky than cash. And so, investing done well over the long term with quality companies, diversified properly, all that kind of stuff. We're not saying you know a Good bank context, account or, yes. or a, a mining specy stock. You know, cash is more risky. We're not saying oh, that God, at no. all. No, um, no, no, what no, we're no. saying is, if you do investing well, and again, investing writ large. The easiest, I've said this before, Google Vanguard index chart 2020. In fact, 2021 isn't far away, which is exciting. I know I get excited about strange things. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it, it's, 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 a really, um, it's a really worthwhile thing. The long-term returns of both those asset classes, despite all of the recessions, crashes, pullbacks, uh, crises over the last 30 years, it's just phenomenally different. You get the sense of how much you would have given up uh, to be in cash and it's just not not worth not worth it's not worth it we don't think no. um, being cash now but again the other thing cash is better than is than investing in the stock market at highs and selling at lows and swearing off the market after you've locked in a 30% gain so yeah. like yeah. everything it's how you do it and what you do with it but cash can absolutely be much riskier if you don't do it well and we think we can do it reasonably well so that's why we have that view mate um let's yeah. let's move on to speaking of all-time highs i i'm i'm loath to mention this again because we do it most weeks and I, I cringe and kind of hide under the desk when i mentioned it the rba minutes were out this week that's not what we do every week what we do every week is mention property and this was <laughs> this was this was fascinating so on the same day we got the news that housing has, has risen in value by six percent since december so six percent in six months ish, call it. Maybe it's. I think that was probably younger than that. So maybe three or four months. Six percent annualize that. 10, 12, 15 percent. That's a lot. The average house price in New South Wales. Did you hear this number, Ram? I did. One mil. One point oh one million dollars for the first time ever. Uh, unsurprising because we're at record level, so you'd expect that. But you know, adds adds to the the headline if you throw that in. Um, remarkable, remarkable gains. Eight point three trillion dollars. Um, I have a confession to make, mate. I was on uh, Channel 9's news on Tuesday night and I said, $8.3 billion Australian housing. It's not billion, it's trillion. So I'm going to have to correct the record at some point on that one. Uh, I was picked up by a, by a viewer, which is never much fun. I, I was, it was late. Uh, only out by a factor of a thousand, mate. That's yeah, exactly. Right. Who, among friends. 
Um, I completely, I completely hashed that. So my apologies if you if you did see that. I will try and correct it tonight, given the chance. Um, anyway, the uh, you know, house prices are up. The RBA though still stubbornly sticking with its long term rate forecast of late rates low probably for the next three and a half years in its view, and specifically targeting those two numbers we know: wage inflation and price inflation. But interestingly enough, and the RBA is getting increasingly vocal about this, calling out the fact that even despite unemployment falling, there is still no sign of wage inflation breaking out, to use the the, the jargon, um, that, mm. that bosses seem to be offering things like sign-on bonuses or retention bonuses, one-off payments, but seem really reluctant to pass on higher wages. Now, on one hand, you kind of tempted to go, well, yeah, they're not going to give money away for the hell of it. Like, you know, if you get away with giving a one-off bonus rather than pay rise, of course you would. But by the same token, this is still the handbrake on the economy. If you're a business owner listening to this, you're thinking, well, thank God, because things are tough out there. If you're an employee, you're thinking, well, hang on, about bloody time. I haven't had a pay rise in X months, weeks, years, um, decades in some cases. So, I, you know, I'd like some more, please. That'd be lovely. It's a really interesting conundrum for them, mate, because on one hand, they're desperately waiting for this thing to happen and they've pegged their entire kind of um, reputations on actually finally getting the inflation they've been targeting because while they're doing it, there's other, I mean, the side effects are massive, right? And again, I don't, mm. feel free to get in the house prices if you want, but I don't want to get necessarily back in the house prices for the sake of it. More just that broad point that you think about the house price growth because of these low rates and the fact that the rates, at least thus far, aren't actually working to do what the RBA wants it to do. There's a real, there's a, it, it feels like the degree of difficulty, the, the, the risk level continues to slowly but steadily creep higher and higher and higher because it's just, it's got a plan, it's got a policy yet there's no fruit being born from it. On the other hand, of course, other people are yelling out saying there's going to be massive hyperinflation that's coming, be careful. So maybe the RBA finally gets what it wants, but it just feels to me like the, the, you know, it, it, the, the, the high wire has been taken higher and higher and higher and the net is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's exactly right. It, it just seems as though... Uh, well, it seems to me as though a lot of the stimulus, whether it be monetary or, or fiscal, has all gone into asset values. There's not much mm-hmm. that's actually gone into the, the quote unquote the real economy there, which is why the yeah. infl- why inflation is is not showing <laughs> up. I, I right, don't right. I don't know how to square that circle or what right yeah how they address that or anything. But a couple of things I would note too. I think it's always interesting to read what the RBA says. But a couple of weeks ago, I think it was Alan Cole. I was just watching the news. He put up a chart of interest rates Cole, but he overlaid that no <laughs> he loves his charts not. not uncle alan he wouldn't do that i, I love Go a good on. chart too i love a good chart <laughs> and and on that he'd overlaid uh the the consensus forecast at various points oh, so right, i had this nice. chart doing its thing and then and branch off from that would be the forecast in may yeah. of 2019 yeah, and right. none of them none of them <laughs> We're even close. It's and like this the is a energy de- chart, by the way, which is a massive tangent. Have you seen that? All, all the, all the forecasts of how much renewable energy is not going to do, and it just, it's just this, it's a oh. reverse chart of just like, you know, renewable energy is going to be nothing, and it takes off. Well, there's going to be nothing from here. It takes off again. It's like, okay, fine. Keep going. It's like Yogi Berra says, you know, forecasts are really hard, especially those ones about the future. You know, it's just, <laughs> exactly. So it's not, a, it's, it's easy to sort of go, what a bunch of idiots. Well, they're yeah. not. They're not idiots. It's just, it, it's like the old saying, why can we put a man on the moon, but we can't predict the weather? Well, mm-hmm. the answer is, is that predicting the weather is much more difficult. And it's, it's the same with these forecasts. So yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting what they say. Um, I don't, mm-hmm. don't have a strong opinion on whether they're right or wrong, but I, I, I don't think it's sensible to mm. say, well, RBA reckons this and, and therefore I'm just going to act 
on that assumption <laughs> because right. they can be wrong. They might yeah, exactly. be wrong. There's exactly. statistically they are probably wrong because of because when these things change, no one no one forecast COVID right. And look how exactly. much that threw things around. So yep, exactly. so for me, and I know it's again flogging the same old horse here. It's just I I don't try to predict these things. I just try to account for the unexpected yeah. in, in what I'm doing. And th- therefore, if if something un- well not if when something unexpected happens, yeah. I'm yeah. not going to be wiped out. I'm going to be I'm going to I'm going to live to fight another day and, and potentially even benefit from the dislocation. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? No, I, I think this is the hardest part for me, mate, because. It's one of those things where the because the it's almost like the the the, the, the to, speaking of graphs the old fat tails thing right so the idea of mm. normal distributions the old bell curve the chance at each end are really really small the chance in the middle much more likely um, you've, you you can visualize the curve I'm talking about we need to put it up on on page you know I mean little little, little chance mm. at one end little chance at the other big chance in the middle it feels mm. to me like the curve is is flattening <laughs> to again not not intentionally use the COVID phrase um, but the fat tail at each end feels like it's growing right we're getting yeah. higher and higher house price while the RBA is desperately trying to fix the wage inflation price, price inflation problem but at some future point the chance that either it, it, it completely unhinges the economy in terms of house prices up still no inflation or the other hand it keeps rates so low for so long that inflation builds and it all of a sudden literally explodes. You know, the whole idea of the volcano kind of bubbling and bubbling and bubbling, nothing happening. Everyone's standing around saying, what are you worried for? There's nothing going on. All of a sudden you look over your shoulder and it has gone through the roof and, and everyone's in trouble. Um, mm. That's that's the bit that actually worries me more than anything. And again, to your point, there's nothing you probably do about it, but I I do think there is risk of risk at one end you can kind of allow for, risk at both ends of either. There might be hyperinflation or there might be absolutely no inflation, you know, and... and and horribly, horribly accommodative settings for years with no result. I'm not sure which one is worth it. Worse, they're probably both equally bad, but the impacts are really, really different each end. Like the, the chances of, you know, if there's no inflation rates, say low asset prices go through the roof. Is there an asset price crash at some point? Is there a housing affordability crisis at some point? If not already, maybe. If they get what they want, but inflation overshoots, then all of a sudden we're back in the how do you deal with hyperinflation or super high inflation? Hyperinflation mm. is is too much. I shouldn't I shouldn't use that phrase. Probably but, you know, probably not hyper. Yeah, yeah. But I guess a four, five, six percent. It's like, oh, hang on. Now what do we do? Do you jack rates up hard? Okay, what does that do? The housing price. It's, it's all that stuff is just it feels like it's kind of roiling around in the surf. It's kind of if I reach for a, a visual metaphor. Um, hard mm. to know. Hard to know what comes from this. But there's risks at either end. That, I guess that's my 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 greatest concern. Again, I'm not uh, for all of that. Am I changing anything? No. The one thing I will say is, you know, we do talk about stuff that probably isn't impactful regularly, but I do think to some degree what I want to do is have our listeners at least know that these things are possible because even if, you do, even if our advice is do nothing, if we don't talk about it and do nothing, when and if it happens, some of our listeners may do something because we haven't talked about it, which is, you know, is maybe just me trying to justify the conversation. But, you know, more, more importantly, you know, if, if and when it happens, I want to, I want to have discussed it. So we can have understood the and you know, listen say, oh yeah, the guy said that might happen, and I still should keep going anyway. That that's as important, I think, as as, as ignoring it because it's not important. So that's why it's worth talking yep. about, mate. Speaking of yep, wage, nice. speaking of wage inflation, I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a short rant. I, I know that's a good for me. Um, Go for it. So this whole super debacle. Have you been Have you been following my my emails and tweets and stuff about this super? debacle I've, I have I have and I, and I, I empathise oh, with where you're coming from so lay it out lay it out for I us I swear to God so let's go the short version because we don't want to go we don't want to be here 
Oh, no, no, get comfortable, mate. Afternoon. Take us, take us. <laughs> hey, hey, after all the house price rants I've listened from you, you can, you can just be quiet there and let me know. So Fair here's enough. the thing, right? We we were very vocal at The Motley Fool. Uh, I may, mostly me, but on behalf of The Motley Fool and, and with a whole lot of other people, that the superannuation increase from 9.5% of salary to 10% of salary that your employer must contribute should go ahead. We were super, super loud about that because it's important that the superannuation pool grows large enough to support individuals in their retirement from an individual perspective and lessens the pressure on the budget from a from a government perspective. And frankly, from a future, you know, I don't want to leave my kids, you know, my healthcare costs and living costs and pension costs. If I've got the ability and smarts and structure policy to to pre-fund my retirement, I should. And that's what that's what super is all about. So we, we thought nine and a half percent wasn't enough. I think 12% is probably about right. Um, maybe it's 11, 11 and a half, but you know, it's got, got to be higher than nine and a half. So we campaigned really, really hard and loud on that. And the government folded. And that was appropriate. And probably even, you know, I might have been pretty happy about that at the time. Turns out that whether it was designed specifically or not, um, the government has allowed companies to effectively st- take that extra increase in super from many people's pay packets which is just absolutely unconscionable. So here's the way it works. If you have been given a contract, not for everybody, if you've been given a contract with your boss and the boss says, I will pay you and let's call it 100 grand because I just I, the math is too hard otherwise. I'm going to give you 100 grand including super and that's a contract you signed, right? That at the moment would be, and I, don't, I won't do the math because I've got the number somewhere, but work with me. That would be something like 91 odd thousand dollars worth of take-home pay and nine grand worth of super contribution. Okay, so 91,900, that's the way it works. Your boss under the current legislation is allowed to say, actually, Andrew, I'm going, I've got to put 10% of your money, your, your pay aside in super now. And you go, oh, great, thanks, boss. It's a bit of extra money. No, 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 no. I'm going to still pay you the 100 grand total. I'm just going to take more of the 100 grand and put it in super, and you're going to have less to take home at the end of the week. Mm. And I, for the life of me, do not know how a government can possibly not only be okay with that, but effectively. The Senator, Senator Jane Hume, who is the superannuation minister, right? Um, let, me, let me read from a news.com.au article. Superannuation minister Jane Hume has delivered a blunt message to unions, here we go, complaining that some bosses will force workers to pay for their own super rises on July 1. Sounds bad. Here we go. Explaining why she doesn't plan to do anything about the practice, Senator Hume has told news.com.au that it's a simple fact there was a trade-off between wage increases and super rises. So that's it. She doesn't care. The government is more than happy for your employer to take money out of your take-home pay and whack it in super because oh, I didn't want to do it anyway. You all made me do it and I didn't want to do it and I hate you. And so guess what? Suck it up, princesses. I'm going to make you hurt because you made me put the 10% through. And I honestly, mate, I don't know that I... Well, <laughs> I was going to say I've not, not seen a more jaundiced response from a government minister of any stripe, but I'm sure that's absolutely untrue because governments and politicians have a long and proud history of jaundiced views and, and uh, you know <laughs> being being able to bait and, and blame their enemies for everything so maybe it's maybe it's not even the t- on the top three or four but I, I was mate I was flabbergasted by this and I don't understand for the life of me how a government with the potential to stop that happening has simply gone yeah you guys wanted it and we said it might happen so suck it up bad luck you, you deserve it I just think that is remarkably unconscionable it just drives me bananas mm. oh, by the way mm. and I'm, I'm going to finish this rant in a minute mate this is the short version believe it or not I'm going to save a little bit of vitriol for those companies who are taking up the minister's invitation. 
And I'll do it on two levels. Firstly, I think it's really, really unethical, right? Yes, you signed a contract. Yes, it was 9.5% super. But seriously, do you really think the best thing you could do for your employees with some sort of social responsibility, social license, just bloody responsibility for your employees is to say, oh no, bad luck, I'm going to take that. I'm going to do it. The government said I can, so I'm going to. Bad luck, you get less home pay. I think it's unconscionable. I think particularly people who do it tough, we know housing is unaffordable, all the stuff we know, and they're happily cutting take-home pay, I think is ridiculous. And I've got to say too, by the way, if it was up to me and I could group together a a group, I talked about this in a different context the other day, a group of companies that that, uh, paid the extra and a group of companies that took it from their employees, I would bet a very decent amount of money that the companies that actually paid the extra because it was the right thing to do end up going on to beat at, at a market level those companies who didn't because they actually care enough about their employees. Can you imagine being working for, and this is the ABC reported Macquarie, AGL, ANZ and Woolworth, not Woolworth, Telstra, Macquarie, AGL, ANZ and Telstra, let me be very clear. Um, apparently our companies that have confirmed to the ABC they're not going to pay them extra, they're going to take it from their pay. Can you imagine working at AGL? Get a letter mm-hmm. saying, hey, guess what? We care about you so much. You're such a valued employee. We're going to cut your take-home pay because the government's making us fund your super. Can you imagine what that does to the morale and discretionary effort at AGL or ANZ or Macquarie or Telstra? I just, the short-sightedness of that alone, even if you didn't want to, to decide to do that and actually have that impact on your employees, I am just flabbergasted they're doing it. So mate, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a bit ranty, as you can tell. I just think that the government not caring and employers actually choosing to do it you go, you know, and, and they're going to bloody put employee cupcakes on next Thursday morning and celebrate some sort of event or they're going to send out some sort of staff survey say, hey, we hope you're loving working here. Tell us what you think. Or when someone else says, hey, you want to come and work with me at my company? They're going to say, no, no, I, I, lo- I love my company so much because they cut my pay to fund super. I just, it's just, it's a massive, massive own goal. Anyway, now I'm not yeah. going to ask you to agree with any of that. I'm just going to simply stop <laughs> and let you, let you have the floor for a minute. Uh, no, I, I, I think it is. It is unconscionable, as you say. It's definitely not within the spirit of what was intended with, with increased right. um, super. Um, so, yeah, you know, am I surprised? No. Disappointed? Yes. I, I guess also, too, there's, there's, it's always a question of perspective here. So while I think everything you said was true, mm-hmm. there would be a lot of small business owners out there that are right on the edge. And because yeah. we, we know how tough small business is, most small businesses <laughs> fail early on. Yeah. You're yep. barely you're barely making it, and now all of a sudden the mm. government mm. legislates mm. that you need to pay more. So that there's, yeah. I actually do have empathy for that situation. Now it's different if you're talking about a multi-billion-dollar company, which is literally talking about less than half a percent impact to its bottom line and an equivalent impact to you as to all your competitors mm. as well. That that is just that is just obscene. Um, so there is, I think that nuance is worth uh, factoring in there. I, I, I can imagine a lot of smaller business owners going, well, gosh, yes, I'd, I'd love to, but but how? It's like, it's a question between viability and <laughs> and that. So, so some people won't have the choice. The other thing though I'd pick up on is your comment about what it, whether those companies that do the right thing will outperform. And they will mm. not because that's just... Um, uh, it's not karma. Yeah, exactly. it's not. It's not karma. Yeah. But yeah. like, if 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 you are a, a disgruntled employee, you are gonna. <laughs> yeah. Your goal is to work. It was like that great movie Office mm. Space, mm. which is one of my all time favorite movies. And he basically says, "My job is to work the bare minimum, not to get fired. That's that's what I do. Yeah. You know, totally I am right. not going to put a single ounce of effort in that <laughs> I don't need to to avoid yeah. being fired. And when you treat your employees like crap, that's what it is. I've learned." Mm-hmm. 
I've learned in personally direct experience that I've actually saved more by paying more because when well, you yeah. it's it's really hard to find good people and when you find them you want to look <laughs> after them. I would yeah, much right. rather pay you know the 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 fantastic developer one hundred and fifty dollars an hour than the than someone who's at thirty dollars an hour because even though you know notionally one's much more expensive, yeah. the guy who's who is proven and a known quantity it just delivers the 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 right outcome the first time every yeah. time, yeah. whereas the other guy might be cheaper on a per hour basis, but they're going to build a <laughs> pile of rubbish. You're going to have yeah. to spend a bunch of time trying to fix it up afterwards. It's going to be as buggy buggy as all a buggery, yeah. um, and yeah. it's just it's it's a False economy. So, totally. you know, uh, unfortunately, though, this this is where it comes back to. It depends on the industry. It's all very, very well and good for us to sort of say, well, if they're not treating you right, just go and get another job. A lot of people don't have that opportunity. And yep. a lot of people work in, in jobs where they are highly replaceable for better or yeah, for worse. Totally. So you know, if, if if I'm if I'm the world's greatest heart surgeon, I can just name my price, right? If I'm packing shelves yeah. at Woolies, well, I can yeah. I can kick and scream all I like and say it's not fair. And go, well, fine. We all we need to do is find someone else who will. And and there's yeah. and you know, so it's a conundrum. But yes, it is disappointing to see a lot of come. It's like with Harvey Norman and JobKeeper, right? Like I think that's yeah, a bit. That's right. Rich yeah, as well, yeah. and I'm no fan of of, of Mr. Harvey in a lot of yeah, ways, right. which I'm on the record of, of saying. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a lot of bad out there, and, and that's that's potentially the role of government in certain mm-hmm. situations is just to make sure that that the system works where there where there are some potential gaps for for the greater good. But you know, I think, it's, I think it's easy to skew into philosophy and and, and politics here. I'm, I'm trying trying not to. <laughs> Mate, also, I, I, I'm going to look. This is going to this is going to really earn the ire of our small business listeners. So I apologise in advance, but I've got to call it as I see it. Um, the cost of employment goes up by half of one percent. Let's say that employment costs are half your total cost base, including rent and raw materials and machinery and upkeep and security and electricity, and that means your total cost base is increasing by a quarter of one percent. Now I know that's got to come from somewhere. But if your business is so marginal that a quarter of 1% is the difference between death or glory, survival and, and not surviving in business, mm. you're, you're only one cost increase from your supplier away. You're only one customer walking out the doorway from collapse anyway. And while I don't wish that on anybody and I don't say that flippantly because people are taking risks and employing people and I, I absolutely get it, I just find the argument, it, it, it's, a, it's an emotional argument and I understand where the emotion comes from. I just, I really struggle, mate, to see how that can be rationally supported Given given the size of it, and you can say, well, I've got to pay other costs, and, and that's all true. I, I absolutely get it. But if your business is that marginal, that that's the that's the breaking point. I don't know what else. Particularly, by the way, after a year and a half of, of COVID support from from the government and other people, I, I just I find that one a little bit hard to swallow. Not because it's not impactful, not because it's not real, not because you've got to find the money. Just because I think at that point, if you're not if you don't collapse as a rolled super increase, you're a month away from when your landlord puts the rent up. If if you're literally mm-hmm. that close. Or for when your supplier says, ah, the cost of sugar has gone up or the cost of widgets has gone up or electricity goes up again or, you know, 15 customers go to the new cafe next door or a new machine shop down the street. Um, if you're that close, you are that close anyway. And you probably want to think about how you can exit the business well before you get to that point rather than, rather than complaining about it happening. Is that, is that too unreasonable? 
No, no, no. I, I think I think that's that's some very fair as well. Unfortunately, we all we all look at things through our own personal lens, and and the yep. art of policy is looking for the greater good and looking at what benefits the yes, most people exactly. most of the time. That that's the really hard part. So while there are definite legitimate exceptions yeah. to all yep. the rule, it's unfortunately if if at a policy level, I mean, your job is it's impossible to make everyone win. <laughs> right. um, so there, there's always compromise. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah, it's tough. It, it is really it is- tough, but. But yeah, I go ahead. It's a really good point, mate. I think, and, and I will say for, for all of that, and, and wrapping it back up again with a tangent on a tangent, um, the it, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a replication of the kind of globalization problem, right? Where there's lots and lots and lots of diffuse benefits of something that is just the right policy for the right reasons, like international trade, but there are really concentrated costs on certain parts of the economy, and you know the US Rust Belt, for example, or Australia's car industry, where. Those things just literally took off past us. Are we better off having better, cheaper cars as a, as a country? Absolutely. Does it mean there are negative impact on a small number of specific groups of people? Yes, also absolutely true. And I think as a, as a government, as a, as, a, as a policy setting, as you say, and again, not politically, uh, but just, just generally speaking, hopefully we're learning. And COVID was actually a really good example of this um, mm. where we kind of went, okay, this is kind of crap. We need to do something to help to minimise the pain, to maximise the chances and, and the speed of recovery. And you know what? It kind of worked. It worked pretty mm, well. Mm. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully there is some some way, as you rightly point out, to say there are some groups that are being, you know, that are going to have to wear the cost of increased suit because it's the right thing for a, for the country. How do we do it in a way that makes most sense for most people and gives most people a chance of of getting through it in a, in a productive and, and positive way? One bit of irony from all of this too, and just following on from a, an earlier conversation, was mm. is that we bemo- we bemoan the lack of inflation. And the yeah, la- and right. and the fact that wages aren't rising, and that's from yeah. the government as well. We say, hey, we need yeah. to do something about that. We're not we're not seeing the wage growth that we hope and expect to kind of see. And it's like, well, this ain't helping that problem. <laughs> this is actually set making it more of a problem, you know. So there's yeah, yeah. there's a there's yeah, a bit of cognitive dissonance at play. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a it's a really strange one, isn't it? But anyway, let's let's move on from that one. That was a, that was a long rant. I think it's absolutely deserved, by the way. But I'll I will move on. I'll, I'll recover myself and, and move forward. Get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Free trade agreements. There was a free trade agreement announced between Australia and the UK this week. Uh, well, at least in principle. They, in principle means the leaders are there. We haven't got the detail yet, but we want the handshake and the photo op. So they do an in principle agreement, which is kind of like, oh, let's just get most of this done so we can shake hands and we'll make it work at the end. Um, because, you know, you're leaving with something 95% done and no handshake and no photo op. It's not, not in, the, in the range of outcomes available to our politicians these days, it seems. Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison. I always said Tony Abbott, which is a weird throwback. I'm not sure why. Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison uh, have done a deal which means that apparently British backpackers no longer need to spend time picking fruit in Australia's outback, that we'll be able to get their scotch cheaper, which I can't complain about. And, mate, if you're in the market, when, when Strawman takes off, when you're in the market, not if, when you're in the market for a Rolls or a Bentley, they will be cheaper now. You can buy yourself a... a are they still making them? Maybe they don't. Whatever cars they make in the UK now come to Australia tariff-free as a result of the change. Uh, I'm, I'm a little... so I, I'm, I'm really split on this one, mate. I'm really, really split. Free trade agreements are universally, unquestionably good in general and overall. We just actually finished talking about the idea of the diffuse benefits. Lowering barriers improves, improves trade and improves efficiency, improves lives, uh, living standards. We know that to be true overall. 
It hurts individuals. The farmers are worried, for example, about what it might mean for their market or our market in that sense. Um, I don't imagine Australian whiskey <laughs> producers are super excited that scotch is now going to be cheaper. So there's, there's, there are things at play that, you know, there are specific costs to this. Generally speaking, though, I think we should all want, generally speaking, maybe disagree, um, freer trade that improves the standard of living for everybody around the world because it removes inefficiencies from the economy. On the flip side, I noted in the paper today that uh, the UK government is, you'll get, you'll like this, is going to, the free trade agreement is going to improve the UK economy by, <laughs> drum roll please, 0. 0.02%. <laughs> 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 which I thought was, which I thought, look, you know, it's something and it's better than nothing. And I think there probably are actually more benefits than that. I think if I was a betting man, I'd say the removal of tariffs and just the, you know, confidence is a big thing and, and process and speed and, simplicity and just those those kind of you know um the whole do we do a deal with australia oh no don't sit it there because we pay tariffs or australia saying do i want to buy stuff from the uk we've got to deal with the tariffs let's look somewhere else it's almost the kind of the the the, the, the shortcut the mental shortcuts that when you know something's difficult or more expensive or harder leads you to avoid so i would i would bet it's a little bit better than that probably not much better but a little bit better um mm. i don't know mate is, is, it, is it a big deal is it not a big deal do you care do you not care what does the free trade agreement mean to you it, it's one of those things where the devil is always in the detail and it, it depends who you are, as you say, you know, is it, in, in, for, for some of us it's going to be great, for others, well, not great, for some of us it's going to be slightly better, for some of us yeah. it could potentially be a lot worse. So mm-hmm. that's that's the tricky thing. So it's hard to give a blank, blanket statement on it. I, I think as a rule, reduced trade barriers are a good thing. Um but you know, there's problems with that too. It depends who the trade agreement is with and where, where the com- where that country's comparative advantage comes from. If it comes from exploiting workers by paying them mm. next to nothing, mm. um, yeah, we all get our t-shirts a lot cheaper. But you know, what's what's the cost that that, that comes with that? There's not a, not a tangible dollar cost to us. It's a savings, in fact. Mm. But it, it probably means putting some people out of work here and 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 putting that's it into problem, an industry right? that's very abusive. You know, look at the yeah, fashion industry. Yeah. So again, I always yeah. I always wade into these sort of moral dilemmas. So it's mm. I really do get that there's tons and tons and tons of nuance around all of these things. Mm. And the government's mm. going to make it out to be the biggest and best thing since sliced bread, um, yeah. because that's what that's what governments do. But but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't change anything for me. I mm, I, I, mm. I want to see the specifics of it before I get too excited. But in general, I suppose it's on balance um, a, a, a positive thing, a small positive thing. I think that's true. I think that's true. And look, I, you know, I think it's also these things also a domino effect. Again, the, uh, you know, this this deal is almost is almost irrelevant, right? For, unless you're directly impacted. But what I like about it is it, it, for example, puts more pressure on other countries who want to deal with us or them. To also come to the party with similar deals, it, you know, the, it, the the kind of self-reinforcing. You know, if I build a wall, you build a wall, and I build my wall higher, so you build your wall wall higher. The same is also true. <coughs> me, in this case, on, on the way back down, that lowering a wall and increasing trade. When someone sees the UK doing more business with us than with them, or th- where their trade goes from us to them or them to us, they'll they'll start to think, hang on, well, I want part of that too. And so I think overall, if trade barriers come down, that is necessarily a good thing. That's it. Exposed industries really do get hurt. We need to support them, which is my last point about super mm. and, and that sort mm. of stuff but you know I think we need to do a much better job of that we kind of screwed that up and the Yanks did too by the way and that's a, a large degree the rise of Trump whether you like him or don't he kind of rode on the back of that idea of you know the the, the, the hollowing out of the American Midwest in particular and it's kind of true that that was the problem was these people were <coughs> excuse me, saying look I'm, I've been left behind I, I've been ignored I've you know you guys were all <coughs> excuse me driving your cars and you know going your fancy lunches and I haven't got a job and 
who's going to look after me? And, you know, that's a natural response. So hopefully as a, as a, as a society here in Australia and elsewhere, we've learnt that. But also hopefully it leads to, um, to better standards of living across the board. Mate, yeah. um, speaking of standards of living, how's this segues are rolling off the tongue at the moment. This is one you mentioned this morning to me, and I, I liked the, the, you know, we don't want to get, we don't want to get overly political. I've arguably been there just then, but overly political or, um, or, or even environmental, but the Santos CEO, Santos being the oil company, gas company, is calling for support for net zero to stop gas going in the way of coal. Now, I don't know. I, I won't even start. I'll, I'll start by just simply asking you, your, when you read that, what were your thoughts? I think it's, I think it's, I, 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 at face value, I, I like to hear that kind of stuff. I think the executives of these companies just need to face the harsh reality of, mm. of things. <laughs> and, and I actually come at it trying to avoid any kind of environmental impact. Mm. I just think the, ec- the economics are moving in a certain direction where right. a, a lot, you know, so it's kind of, well, yeah. Let me be clear. I've got very firm views. On, I would prefer not to destroy our ecosystem. So you yeah, know, uh, I'm I'm big on that. But the the point is, is that even when you remove that massive argument, I think mm. there's just a certain change in in the economic reality and landscape and things. And so, mm. people who bury their heads, uh, I think, uh, are going to pay for it ultimately. So so he was right to sort of acknowledge this and to and to urge the industry to to think a bit more forward mm. and to try and prepare for that transition i think that's really any ceo that's thinking beyond the next quarter thinking long term <laughs> facing right. facing no, reality you know yeah. facing reality as it is yeah. not yeah. as they yeah. would have it yeah. they're all very very good things so so from that standpoint mm-hmm. it was good unfortunately <laughs> though when i read further down the article they started to get into this uh and this may be controversial but they started they started to get into this <laughs> idea of carbon capture and storage Right. Which has just been something that we have funded, we, you and me and everyone listening through our taxes, <laughs> um, a lot of investment over a long period of time because that really is the best solution for, yeah, for okay. all the incumbents, right? Because it means you get to keep doing what you're doing, but then you don't, mm. the, the carbon mm. problem goes mm. away. And yeah. we're all happy as well because the carbon goes away. So it's just like, it is, yeah. it is brilliant. And I would love to live in a world where there was a really effective technology and cost-effective technology yeah. that did that. Yeah. But I just, I get, and look, I'm no expert on it, but I do, I do try to stay abreast of these things. And yeah. my read on it is, is that this is a technology is just a dead end. It, mm. it doesn't seem to work. And it certainly doesn't have the potential to work at scale to make a serious dent to the emissions yeah. and the emission trajectory that we're on. So it kind of seems like a really convenient. Here's my cynic, cynical um, <laughs> side, side of things. It, we're very, a very. It, it's it's great for the company, these kinds of companies, to talk about it because they can say, "Hey, look, we care. We want to do something about it, and we'll do. And this is how yeah. we're going to go about it." Whereas, yeah. just it's from a technology standpoint, from an economic standpoint, it's just not. It's just not the thing that's likely to save us. It's probably, and this is again according not just my my view. This is just I, I think mm-hmm. the, the consensus amongst the people who do know about this stuff is that the future is probably renewables with energy storage of some form uh, augmented to it. It's it's and it's not something that we have to bet on some big technological discovery. We've already got it. It's here now. And every year it's getting cheaper and cheaper and better. You just need to push those curves forward a little bit before it just becomes like, you know, mm-hmm. the only thing you would sensibly do un- under under any ideological framework. Um, 
So that that's disappointing. I think good on him for saying that, but come on, can we can we stop chasing this technology? Just may, maybe maybe the massive breakthrough is just around the corner, and I'll eat my words. But it doesn't seem <laughs> that to me. I so can I say that's the bit that I so from an investing uh, leave the you and I are both on the record on on, on climate change. Um, leaving the leaving the environmental piece aside, though, it, it struck me that this these feel like so these feel like wider range of outcome businesses than they have been in the past. In other words, at one level, there is no one does anything about climate change or not enough. Um, they keep producing for really long amounts of time. The shares are really cheap because the market's assuming that climate change is real and something will be done. And so there's big upside potential in, in that sort of environment. That's pretty dystopian, but it might be true. The other one is, and that's, that's really up one end. The other one to my mind is that this is one of those stories where they're basically saying <laughs> this business is untenable. And unless it's a Hail Mary, I'm, I'm kind of in trouble here. And so while, while what's being painted by Santos as a, here's how we survive and thrive in the future, and, and the CEO made the point, we don't want to go the way of coal. So he's kind of seeing what happened to coal and saying, well, okay, we better find a way through this one. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I know how it would be done. But I, mm. you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that, that you know, if, I, if I'm an investor, and I'm buying shares in Santos. And look, if I'm a trader, I'm betting on the oil price next three months. Well, good luck to you. But if I'm an investor, I'm looking at Santos going, I want to own this for the long term. I'm not sure what thesis I make. I'm not sure how I'm confident enough in the future, man. I have to say, while I'm always, resources are normally in the too hard basket for me just on pricing alone. This is one of those situations where I'm like, unless you have a really strong view or you get really lucky, I don't know how you have a, I don't know how you create a long-term investment thesis in any fossil fuel industry just because of the sheer size and, and, and diverse range of outcomes yeah, that could go hard. from you know moderately well because the price is now cheap because part of the market's assuming that it's all over and that's kind of the Philip Morris Altria story over the last half decade half century sorry where they went well cigarettes are going to go away but Philip Morris still made a fortune over 50 years because people were early on that one so maybe that's the maybe that's the oil story the gas story on the other hand though maybe it does actually go away and in that case there's a big issue to deal with. I'm I'm not entirely sure how to how to think about that. Yeah, well, that, that's a great example, and I know it's one we've talked about previously. But just to reiterate, the, the reason the cigarette companies did well is because they faced reality. So yeah, what did they yeah. do? Well, it's like, hey, we'll keep selling these things as long as people will buy it. I'm not <laughs> going to paint them as saints. Then they're, they're not. Yeah. But yeah. they didn't expand their facilities. They didn't in, in put. They right. didn't reinvest huge amounts of capital into something that they knew was a sunset industry, right. or very likely to be extremely small in the future. So I think mm, yeah. that's that's where they get credit in terms of, of capital allocators, leaving everything else aside. Now I just think if I was going to be investing in one of these kinds of companies. And I would, for, for the record, I, I would happily mm. invest in one if I felt as though mm. there was someone who was approaching it in a very sensible way. Like there, there are some coal mines out there. I've heard some guys make some pitches for some coal stocks. Actually seem like pretty reasonable investment cases, which okay. is, yeah, we know it's going, but these are established mines where most of the cap, the invested capital has right. been invested. Right. And we're, we're, we're just going to, we're just going to run this through to depletion because why not? We've already yeah, yeah, got yeah. it. Run it for cash. And right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You just run it for cash. And, and they're not factoring in any multiple expansion. They're just saying, based purely on a cash flow, this is just a cigar butt kind of thing. There's a few more puffs in it, but they're going to they're going to they're going to generate a bunch of cash and return it to shareholders. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. You just need to you just need to make sure that 
you have a, a CEO and management team that is going to be realistic with that others than, other than just saying, no, 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 we're going to take every amount of money that we earn and we're just going to double down on this and we're going to double down and double down and double down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Until, that's right. Until, you know, and then you find yourself with 10 times the, the equipment and size and infrastructure that is mm-hmm. now, worth, now worth absolutely nothing. So too hard for me. I'm, 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 I'm not going to go there. Yeah, I just I, I can't disagree with you. I think that that's that's what I'm finding the hard the hardest part with this is just a story of the range of outcomes is just way too big and as you say relying on com- some combination of policy technology and by the way they're still going to run a, they're still going to run a profitable business you know on, at the prevailing resource price it's a really really tough one. Well, make when you make those decisions too, just just very quickly, you, yeah, you're yeah. not. It's 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 it, it's potentially you make the argument. Well, I think over the next few years. The future mm-hmm. is pretty more certain. It's much easier than predicting out ten or twenty years. But mm-hmm. these guys are making capital allocation decisions over that time frame. You're going to build a massive gas terminal off the coast of Queensland. You know that's mm-hmm. a few tens of billions of dollars and 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 a ten year project. So you have to you 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 are, you are having to make decisions over very long periods of time. And how much could things potentially change in that time just before you get to turn yeah. the thing on? <laughs> wow, that is so hard. Exactly, not, not for exactly. me. Yeah, crazy, man. Let's go to let's go to something. Maybe I buried the lead here because you've seen the movie The Big Short. I've seen the movie The Big Short. It it features a man called Michael Burry, and Michael Burry was the man who famously and infamously called the subprime credit crisis before it happened. One of the only voices in the wilderness uh, to say, "Hey guys, this is bad and it's going to go badly." So he got you know a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of credence, a lot of press, and frankly, a lot of people follow him as a result. Uh, kind of mirroring to some degree the, some of the dot-com crash predictors at the same time and others, Anura Rubini comes to mind. Um, he's saying this is the biggest stock market bubble in history. Now, we started by saying you don't pay attention to the market. I don't pay all that much attention to the market. That said, <laughs> when someone says biggest bubble in history, that's worth listening to. Mm. And I, I am torn. I said to you as we, as we put the agenda together, I'm not sure that I understand the basis for that assumption. You can say the market's mm. overvalued. You can say it's richly valued. You can say the investors are optimistic. You can say you expect better, worse economic times or inflation or something else. Um, you can make arguments for all of those things. That's a very, very long way from the biggest mar- bubble in history. That Those are the kind of market calls that you kind of expect from the perma bears. Uh, and, and pretty fair, maybe Burry is because he's looking for downside. He picked the, the, the GFC. Um, you know he's looking for those big downside events and hoping to insure against them. I suppose. I just I, I as I said I, I can make I can I can understand a, a view that says there is too much expectation. Investors are too getting too carried away. Rates can't stay this low. There will be there will be you know potential future shocks. That would be a very reasonable thing and a very okay thing. Now Barry's to some people a god or a superhero, and it may even dare into question his views might be seen as some degree of blasphemy. I just can't see it, mate. I just can't. And not that it's not possible, but to make that make that absolute... He's not saying it's possible that this might be or we better be careful that it doesn't become. He's saying this is. He's making an absolute cast-iron concrete judgment mm. and they're almost by definition prediction of saying this is the biggest bubble in history, which in theory must be followed with, I guess, the biggest crash in history or at least some sort of a really super extended period of stagnation, surely. Yeah, it's a really strong statement. Can I... But- before I get into that, can I just say yeah. I always thought it was really cool that the guy who played him in the Big Short was Batman. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's like, cool. 
Christian, Christian Bale was like, oh, that was a really odd choice, but man, he did such a great job. Well, he looked um, like him, right? That was part of the reason, at least, at least possibly. Uh, and he just did it as well. I mean, you, the, 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 the guy who plays Batman is also the guy who played Michael Burry. It's just so cool. Um, <laughs> who would play you yeah, in the movie, Andrew? Oh, look, I, geez, I, I'd play myself, mate. I'm a man of many talents. I'd, I'm not going to leave it to Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise. Or, you got screwed up. I just screw up myself. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, so so here's the thing. I, I think if he was to sort of say, hey, I think it's a bit frothy out there, right. I'd go, yeah, yeah, I kind of agree, actually. Um, but it's it's the magnitude of the statement, the, the no. greatest speculative bubble of all time. Now, all time includes <laughs> Tulip Mania, right. the South Sea <laughs> bubble, exactly. you know, and, and, and that... That is that is the the part that sort of catches it's you. Confident, it's a confident call, isn't it? In yeah. that context, I mean, he oh. points to some he points to some things. So we've got we have have we talked about SPACs on the podcast before? Ah, uh, probably in passing. Yeah. So these special purpose acquisition vehicle things, yeah, and they, companies, they, yeah. they they really seem top of the cycle kind of stuff. Yeah, they, We've got the they? whole crypto thing just going yeah. nuts on all kinds of yeah. weird coins that are out there. We've got even some Lots really of going on at high prices. All of that kind of stuff, yeah, you know. We've yeah. got multiples and interest yeah. rates at probably the lowest they're ever able to sort of get to, or maybe that's mm, famous mm, last words, mm. um, and and things priced off that last thing forever. So there's all of these things right. that you can point to that sort of say, "Yep, it seems pretty toppy." Um, yeah. But then there's a, then there's a, there's there's two points on that, and he himself knows this because although he picked the 2007 crash. He was he was he was telling his investors that they can't redeem because in the lead up to that he was losing them heaps of they were money freaking out yeah, on paper because yeah. he's saying this is yeah. going to happen and it, and it did eventually happen <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, and it happened yeah. to such a degree that he was able to make up for of that but but if yeah. if he was right but he was right a year or two later it probably wouldn't uh, yeah, have mattered totally. no so yeah. So there's that. So he might. So maybe he's right. But even if he is right, he needs to be right soon. If you're going to do anything about yeah. that, as as, yeah. as we often uh, talk about. And mm-hmm. then to your point, if it is pretty frothy, and then we have another fifty percent drawdown at some stage, well, that's that's what's going to happen. Whether because of the reasons he says or or whatever, we mm-hmm. we just know that markets are going to do that every ten years or so on average. So so yeah. Um, but is that is that a reason just to go short everything? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, not 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 for me. So again, I'm, I I I respect him a lot. I think he's a really super super smart person. I agree in general with what he's saying, just not the magnitude potentially. I think that's right. I think that's right. I'm, I'm going to add one more, not not to talk Barry down at all, because as you say, super smart guy, super capable, um, and, and really thoughtful. And he, he picked it absolutely right. Um, the uh, I think that's I think it's worth just remembering that. Even even for I don't mean it's not anti Barry at all, but just remember that anyone can predict something once, and it's like you know uh, Warren Buffett's talked about the fact that if you got everyone in America to toss a coin, um, there'd be there'd be some stupid number of people like tens of thousands of people who would toss ten, ten heads in a row. Doesn't make them great head, head, uh, coin tosses or particularly lucky in any other mm. any other you know way other than by definition, just that the distribution means someone so someone was going to be right about the GFC. Because someone was going to be right about it. Because in the in the world of X millions of thousands of people, someone was going to say housing looks too expensive. Just the mm. same as during the COVID crash, those people who took their money out in March and said, "I'm going to wait till the crash and then buy back in." Missed the opportunity. If if there had been a crash, they would have been the geniuses. Um, you know, the, the, that's the whole point of prediction, right? If you've got enough people predicting enough different things, <laughs> many different things, someone's eventually going to be right. 
does it make them particularly prescient, particularly smart, particularly likely to get the next one right? I don't know. I won't say no because we just literally don't know. So there's just a, there's just something about just being careful to not over <coughs> um, over extrapolate one success, even for the right reasons in the past, and assume you can do it forever because it just doesn't always happen. There are some people who get this really right. There are very, very few of them. The vast bulk um, tend to be right from time to time. <laughs> no, not necessarily every time, right? So just, just keep mm. that in mind as well. And you know what? When there's the next crash at some future point, because there will be one, someone will call it and they will be the person everyone quotes rather than Michael Burry, rather than Nuri Rabini, rather than whoever it was before that who got that crash right. That's just the way this stuff tends to work out. Yeah, law of large numbers. Exactly. Yeah, for exactly. sure. We are done, mate. We're finished for this last pre-rule podcast i'm going to record before i go on holidays we are coming back on sunday of course that one was pre-recorded as will the rest of them over the next three weeks make sure you stick around listen to the podcast episode we had some really good fun mate recording some of those kind of evergreen topics that we otherwise don't quite get to because there's always something on the agenda to talk about in in the moment so when we do our normal weekly podcast we're consumed with we try and we try and make it take a long-term perspective but normally with the the um the starting point the what i call stimulus of what's in the news or what's going on in, in the market or the economy. So we tend, we tend to use that as our stepping off point. We had a chance just to step entirely back and do some brand new stuff that will hopefully land the, stand the test of time. Hopefully you did listener will enjoy and get some value out of. Have your pen and paper ready. I'll just say that. There's some things you want might want to write down over the next few weeks. So make sure you have your pen and paper ready or you know maybe just the pause button. If you're driving, don't get the pen and paper out, please. Just do me that favour. I don't want to be the one responsible for the, you know, oh, Scott told me how to get the pen and paper out and the crash of the truck in front of me. Don't do that. You hear me very clearly say, so don't do that, please. No. Uh, no one wants that. In other words, anyway, enjoy the next few weeks. I certainly will. Um, I'll, I will give the socials, but a fair warning. Uh, if you are following me on social media over the next few weeks, you're going to get lots of photos of the South Australian Outback. So I'll apologise in advance. My uh, my Twitter is also going on holiday. Not as in going away, just going in a holiday mode. And so uh, I might, I'll, I'll look, I'll, I won't be able to avoid sharing some investing thoughts and business thoughts while I'm travelling. I'm absolutely sure, Ram. I don't, like you, switch off that quickly and that easily. Because uh, it's fun, not because I'm not because I'm stressed about it. Just it's just too easy to think about business and investing and that stuff. Uh, but I will be sharing some other holiday holiday travels. So be warned. Uh, you may want to delay your following of me till I get back. Well, but if or if you like some photos of the Flinders Ranges, then feel free to check that out as well, uh, mate. That's it. If you are liking the Motley Four Money podcast, please do subscribe, like the podcast, tell your friends all those good things. Tattoo it on your body, write it across your forehead, in permanent marker, whatever you feel you need to do to make sure you can spread the good news of the Motley Fool Money podcast. Uh, please do like and subscribe. Of course, do follow us on the socials with that uh, aforementioned warning. I'm on Twitter and Insta at TMF Scott P. You can get The Motley Fool on Twitter and Instagram at The Motley Fool AU. Andrew is exclusive to Twitter at Sage underscore Simeon at Strawman Invest. If you're on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia or Scott Phillips Money. And as I said before, you can email us, info at fool.com.au. Any questions, feedback, thoughts or suggestions, we very much value getting them. And I'm looking forward to coming back to a very full Motley Fool Money mailbag so we can get stuck into it when I get back in early July. That's it for us, mate. Until nice. Sunday, until we're back, full on. See you later. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. 
With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.